I need you to like musicals. I need you to like musicals. I need you to like musicals. I know you think they're sappy and bland. And you hated La La Land. But I gotta make you understand They can be profound and beautiful So I need you to like musicals Mimi, since your ways are so seductive Please persuade him not to be so counterproductive Hi everyone, getting ahead of myself there Welcome to I Need You To Like Musicals Episode... Four? Five? I don't remember <laughs> Fuck Um... Oh, sorry that this one's late, by the way. I was holding myself to the standard uh, that probably no one else even noticed or gave a shit about, uh, the standard of releasing an episode every Thursday. And this is the first time that I have failed to do this. I apologize. Um, I don't really have an excuse. Well, I had some schoolwork I was working on on Wednesday. I had a presentation for a class, and so I just didn't have time to watch all these fucking things and take all these fucking notes and record this thing. So uh, here I am, it's Friday, and boy oh boy, today is a marathon, folks. I just finished therapy on Zoom. I have exactly two hours before couples therapy on Zoom. And then after that, I have exactly two hours before I have to go do a shift as a singing waiter at a legendary Italian restaurant in Los Angeles. So today is a, a lot of thoughts and feelings and music and babbling. Probably gonna have uh, nodes on my vocal cords by 10 p.m. Interested to see how it goes. I may or may not uh, do a stop and start on this because actually those two hours are now 90 minutes. I had an unscheduled bowel movement. That's none of your business. And by the way, I bring up these therapy appointments uh, because I'm doing my part to destigmatize mental health treatment. Everybody should be in therapy. All of us. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Just kidding. It isn't. So, um, we're going to get into it in a second. Let me do some news. Uh, I didn't do that last week. I know I said that was going to be the new segment where I would go on Broadway World and tell you the musical theater news of the week. And, uh, it took me exactly one episode to fuck that up. And, but now we're back on track. It's September 8th, 2023. Today, the album of the revival of Sweeney Todd was released on uh, all streaming platforms. Hooray! The one with Josh Groban and Annalie Ashford and all of them. Uh, I listened to exactly two songs from it, uh, just out of curiosity. Uh, like I've said many times, I'm a little burnt out on the whole Sondheim thing, even though those are great. Uh, I can't stand listening to them anymore. What I listened to was Epiphany, and uh, it sucked. You know, it didn't add anything new. Maybe it's better on stage. I don't know. Like I said, I've met Josh Groban before. He went to my high school. Uh, also, I listened to Not While I'm Around because I was curious about this Stranger Things kid, this uh, Gatton Matadzaro. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I apologize if that's not how you pronounce his name. I also found out uh, in looking that up because I was like, how old is this Stranger Things kid? Um, not only is he 21 years old, <laughs> doesn't that make you feel old? But uh, today is his birthday. Happy birthday, Stranger Things kid. Gatton Montanzaro. Now, for your birthday, Gatton, Gaten, I am going to offer you a public apology. Well, first of all, for mispronouncing your name at least once, because I said it both ways. I don't know how you say that. Maybe neither way. Maybe it's some third way. Um, I brought up this kid in the Sweeney Todd episode of Sondheim on Adderall, and I said, you know, the kid from Stranger Things, uh, the kid with the teeth. I found out in uh, when I was looking him up on Wikipedia to see how old he was. Um, he has cleidocranial dysplasia, and that affects the bones in the teeth. I apologize. That was out of line. 
Um, so I'm sorry about that. And kudos to you for having such a great career and doing Stranger Things and doing Sweeney Todd. Um, I cannot believe he's 21 years old, though. I mean, uh, it makes sense. He was born the year that I started uh, college at UCLA. And uh, now I'm old. So here we go. And I'm back in college. That's neither here nor there. Today we're going to talk about two musicals that are often paired and often talked about in conversation with each other. I almost didn't want to do it because I did that karaoke hell episode that was just a negativity city and I did want to talk about you know a good one and I gotta tell you something I revisited Hair and Rent those are the musicals this week by the way Rent and Hair you already know that you read the episode description um and I realized to my surprise I don't hate one of these as much as I thought I did I've been wrong and I owe a public apology to one of these musicals. Let me tease which one that is. Uh, do we have anything else to say before we just go ahead and get into it? We don't. Let's just do this. Um, and I have exactly 83 minutes until couples therapy. So I'm going to go ahead and get into this. Uh, let's talk about hair first. I think we're going to do that one first. Those of you who don't give a shit about hair and uh, you've signed in to listen to this because you were rent heads in the 90s, this is called the old, I'm hooking you in and making you listen to something you don't care about before. And I'm not going to tell you the timestamp of when the rent segment starts, so don't even think about skipping ahead. It could start at any second. So let's not get cute here. <laughs> Asshole. All right, so hair. Hang on. God damn it, this is off the rails. There's no way I'm gonna finish any of this before one o'clock. Okay, sorry, I had to go to the bathroom. Hair is uh, called, very irritatingly, a tribal love rock musical. We all know what it is. Um, it's the hippie musical, right? And it's a hippie musical that was put on Broadway during the hippie thing. They actually started writing Hair in 1964. James Rado and Jerome Ragney. I don't know if it's Ragni or some shit. I, if I could be mispronouncing his name. I can't be bothered to figure out how to say it correctly. So they started writing it in 1964. It went off Broadway in 1967. And then it went on to Broadway in 1968. So, you know, it's all happening at that point right it's all it's the all it's everything that the boomers uh they're, they're it's their youth and it was wonderful and uh, the free love etc so here's the thing if we want to enjoy this musical on any level if we in 2023 want to look back and have a positive experience of hair we have to extract the hippie ideals from the hippie aesthetic because this show is all aesthetics baby there are very little hippie ideals in it. I mean, it's right there in the title, right? It's called Hair. It's not called Peace. It's not called uh, Nonconformity. It's called Hair. It's about the artifacts and the baubles and bangles of being a hippie. It's not about what made you be a hippie in the first place or what made the first hippies be hippies and everyone else be hippies also. It's, uh, it's, the, it's, a, it's a fashionable uh, hippie sh fashion show. And also, um, another thing we have to do if we want to enjoy hair in 2023, and by the way, that's a big if. 
we don't necessarily need to enjoy hair in 2023. It's personal choice. Um, we will have to suspend some of our uh, problematizing disbelief, if you will. You know what I mean? Like, you're going to hear some uh, black stuff and some woman stuff and just constant pervasive Native American appropriation stuff. The whole, You know, it's the tribe thing. We, we got to just sort of let that go for the time being. Um, if, if we want to enjoy hair. And there's a very good chance we don't. There's a very good chance we want to put hair in the trash heap of history and or uh, send it to the Library of Congress as an artifact of a certain time and never produce it again. I would support that personally, but maybe you love those songs so much that you want to keep hearing them and you're not content to listen to them on Spotify. You want to see them on stage and you want to see some private parts exposed. Uh, then, you know, by all means, go see hair. Just make sure you keep all those things in mind that I just said. So hair, very crucially, is a musical about hippies written by non-hippies. Let's be very clear about that. James Rado and Jerome Ragney. They, so the show is kind of autobiographical in so much as like their friendship and their personalities. They are in it. They play Claude and Berger, but they are not hippies or they weren't hippies. They are theater people. They're Strasburg kids. James, Ra uh, sorry, Jerome Ragney, He's like a little more avant-garde. He's into doing like experimental theater. But James Rado, he, he wants to be Rodgers and Hammerstein. He's a Broadway baby. Now, you could argue that maybe they become hippies. They take this anthropological approach as they're writing the show. They're hanging out in the East Village. They're talking to people. And, you know, they, they make friends and they're hanging out. So, you know, it's not like you get a hippie membership card. I mean, it is 19, the mid-60s and you're there in Central Park and, you know, you're dressing up like one, uh, presumably, so that they don't think you're a narc man. So maybe they are hippies. I don't know. But they didn't start out as hippies. And it's not like they're like, hey, we're hippies and let's <laughs> make a musical about the things that we think and feel. Uh, this is a quote from James Rado. Quote, there was so much excitement in the streets and the parks and the hippie areas, and we thought if we could transmit this excitement to the stage, it would be wonderful. We hung out with them and went to their beans and let our hair grow. Okay, so there you go. It's, they're, they're, it's immersive uh, theater journalism, whatever the fuck you want to call it. They actually recruited hippies from straight off the street, or from the park, rather. Um, Shelley Plimpton, uh, George Plimpton's cousin, distant cousin, and Martha Plimpton's mother. We all know who Martha Plimpton is, right? She's that uh, thing, the, that lady that's in all the things. You know, parenthood and a lot of uh, more recent things. Um, James Rado, in some of these interviews, and just the way that he talks about the show, uh, if I may, sounds a little arrogant. Uh, and here's an example of that. He says, quote, It was very important historically, and if we hadn't written it, there'd not be any examples. You could read about it and see film clips, but you'd never experience it. Really? Like, you admit that you yourself are not a hippie. Okay, so you cast a few of them from off the street, but, uh, you know. If you wanted to experience it, you know, at the time, you could have just gone to Central Park. You didn't need to see the theater version of it. And if you want to experience it now, as a historical document, I mean, wouldn't it be better to... See film clips 
and then to see a revival of hair. You know, what, couldn't you watch Woodstock or Give Me Shelter? Wouldn't that do a better job of uh, experiencing the thing? I think what happened too, I think when these guys were talking to these hippies and writing this script, you can kind of see they did like a, hey, you know, when these hippies talk, they don't make any sense. We better make sure that the hippies in our show are nonsensical, like the real hippies. So you end up with an emperor's new clothes situation where everything has the tone of being very profound and cool and it really means nothing. And that kind of, as the years go on, the veneer gets stripped away and it just is, gets exposed as nonsense. It's like, it reminds me of, um, if you hear outtakes of John Lennon doing Come Together off of Abbey Road, and you hear like the alternate versions of Come Together, and it's just, oh, okay, that song is just uh, nonsense. It's just a list of, of things that he shit out of his brain. Flat top Coca-Cola. Because in the, in the outtakes, it's just, you know, uh, here comes the trumpet and the salt and pepper and the violin bow and the fucking Amazon Alexa. So I'm saying things that are here in my office that I'm looking at uh, right now. Sorry about that. So anyway, that's, that's my point. It doesn't actually mean anything. But somebody with uh, very cool clothes uh, on and long hair is saying it. So we take it very seriously. Um, the history of it, this is not really explained why, but so we got Ragni and Rado, who are listed as the uh, lyricist and book writer, but they're writing all these songs, but at some point they send their show to a producer and he connects them with a Grammy winning composer, Galt McDermott. Probably, I'm just guessing here, they did that because their music sucked. <laughs> you know, he ends up being the composer. And writing all the music, but I guess they were attempting, you know, they said he, the, the Rado said he wanted to be Roger and Hammerstein. I guess they were like, hey, uh, yeah, you guys need someone that can actually write music. And Galt McDermott is even less of a hippie than they are. He says, quote, I had short hair, a wife, four children, and I lived on Staten Island. That's about as, uh, <laughs> right, that's as non-hippie as you can get. Uh, I, I, I see, part of me wants to live on Staten Island someday, just because of that ferry, riding that ferry. Uh, so they send Galt the lyrics, and he sets them to music, and they work completely independently. It's similar to Matilda, and I think this is a bad idea. As someone from the Sondheim school, someone that reads all the Sondheim biographies, you, you gotta be immersive with this, guys. You gotta, you, you, you gotta show up to rehearsal and just keep the thing going and make the writing of the show an ongoing living document. You can't just be like, okay, set this to music. You done? Thanks. See you for the next one. He also, he writes the score in three weeks, which is interesting. Uh, it's, it's the first version of the show. They added a lot of songs uh, and we'll get into that in just one second here. The first production of Hair uh, happens at the Public Theater in 1967. And I'm going to tell you something. It's the first thing that ever goes up at the public theater. It was just finished being built. And we all know what the public theater is. The later on, they're going to do Chorus Line. And then famously, that's where Hamilton is going to get kicked off before it moves to Broadway. It's where new things happen, I guess. You want to uh, trot out your innovative new thing at the public theater. That's what it's there for. And I'm just guessing based on those three shows. 
So um, James Rado is 35 years old at this point, and the director says he's too old to play Claude. You can't play it. You fucking square. You're too old. Uh, Ragni, however, is 32, and they let him slide. He's not allowed to play Burger. This production at the public theater is a big fucking mess. Nobody can make sense of the script, probably because it doesn't make any sense. Uh, they do it off-Broadway there, and then they move it to a, a disco nightclub called The Cheetah. And before it goes to Broadway, they're going to reduce this awful script. They're going to cut it down, and they're going to add 13 songs. And so the form that it takes now, or the, its ultimate Broadway form, is really just sort of a nonstop parade of songs with a few little monologues and interspersed dialogue things that really are inconsequential to the rest of the show. And I, if you read the script, which I did... Um, and I have seen this on stage a few times. Not recently, but I saw, you know, as a teenager, I saw it on stage a few times. You don't need that script, any of it. It should just be a concert, kind of, because the script sucks. And part of the writing of the script and the revision is they, oh boy, they do <laughs> experimental theater games and they incorporate the fruits of their improv into the script. Jesus Christ. Um, they're trying to do uh, freedom and spontaneity. They say an organic, expansive style of staging never before seen on Broadway. Cool. Cool story, dude. And the authors of it, um, they, they, so they go to an anti-war protest in Central Park and they see two dudes get naked to express their defiance and freedom. And they're like, oh, fuck, let's steal that for our musical. And so famously, Hair is the musical where people get naked. Very controversial, man. Very, uh, you know. So on Broadway, James Rado gets to play Claude. He's like, fuck that director. I'm getting in this thing. We also, um, we, we see Diane Keaton in the original production of Hair. I think she's even on the uh, OCR, original cast recording. I saw her name pop up on one of the songs. Ben Vereen eventually gets in there. Keith Carradine gets in there. Um, Ted Lang from The Love Boat is in it. Um, he came to my high school, actually, and did a thing uh, when I was in high school. And Meatloaf, the late Meatloaf, God bless his heart. Meatloaf is dead, right? Didn't I, did Meatloaf die? I am not going to look it up. Let's assume Meatloaf is dead. I loved Meatloaf when I was a certain age. And then I watched him on The Celebrity Apprentice and didn't love, like him as much anymore. The, um, this is, uh, I find this ironic on a certain level. <laughs> um, and I couldn't, I, this was just listed on the Wikipedia as a fact. And I couldn't find anybody that found it as ironic as I found. And I'm probably misusing the word ironic, a la Morissette, Alanis. But um, so this was the first Broadway show to charge $50. <laughs> This uh, show about uh, the hippies that was supposed to be, you know, of the hippie, for the hippie, by the hippie. And the average price before that was $11. But they, you know, this was such a hit, they ended up charging 50 bucks for it. That's kind of fucked up. Uh, gets nominated for Tony Awards for Best Musical and Best Director. It lost both of those to 1776. Jesus. Sit down, hair. Sit down, hair. For God's sake, hair. Sit down. A little uh, song parody for you there. 1776. Um, Clive Barnes in the New York Times, who I've quoted many times on this podcast, usually in the Sondheim episodes, a professional wrong person, Clive Barnes, who has just the worst take on everything, always. He says, uh, quote, what is, so like what is so likable about hair? 
I think it is simply that it is so likable, so new, so fresh, and so unassuming, even it's in its pretensions. All right, maybe so. I wasn't there, you know, in 1968. Uh, maybe I would have, you know, I guess it was fresh. I think the problem is it's uh, seeing it after the facts decades later. It seems so stupid because it's not um, fresh anymore. And if that's the main thing that it had going for it, being fresh, then it's safe to say it has nothing going for it now. Here's what uh, certain people thought of it. Leonard Bernstein walked out and on his way out, someone said, what do you think? He's like, the songs are just laundry lists. <laughs> um, Richard Rogers, professional asshole from the one half of Rogers and Hammerstein, he said, oh, you can only hear the beat. <laughs> it's one third music. That's what he called it, one third music, because he could only hear the, the drums. This reminds me of uh, Pete Seeger when Bob Dylan went electric. He got so mad. He's like, God damn it, you can only hear the drums. The ear of the American musician in the 60s uh, had some growing pains with the drums. And uh, I think now, uh, hopefully, uh, our ears have adjusted. And <laughs> the fact that there's a rock and roll drummer doesn't make us uh, not be able to hear the rest of the song. John Lennon said, I found it dull. Hmm, that's bad news. John Lennon finds it dull. Uh, but the best quote comes from the great John Fogarty from Creedence Clearwater Revival. He says, quote, after he saw it, he said, Hair is such a watered-down version of what is really going on that I can't get behind it at all. Whew. There you go. Uh, my experience with hair, they, I saw it very young uh, as a child in Pacific Palisades during my uh, Silver Spoon upbringing. They did it at, I don't remember if it was a high school or a college in Pacific Palisades, but I saw it. I'm pretty sure they didn't do the nudity, especially if it was a high school. That would <laughs> probably not be cool. Uh, all that I remember about it was Aquarius, the opening number. And the rest I, is a blur to me. My friend Philip, when I was in high school, he did it at like a small theater in uh, Burbank that is no longer there. And here's the thing about this. This is very juicy. And I don't know if this is true. So this was a show with all teenagers, put on by teenagers. So no nudity in this one either, by the way. I don't remember if they did like bodysuits or if they just didn't do it, whatever. The director of this show, I think it was that girl from Nexium, Allison Mack. <laughs> I don't know this for sure. I'm about 80% sure of this. I painstakingly tried to find this out. When the whole Nexium story broke, and if you don't know, there's a great document, Nexium, the cult where they branded you, and this, I think she's in jail now, Allison Mack. I, in fact, I know she is. So, um,. It was a big deal that I, I reading the program and knowing who this she she starred in it and she directed it, Allison Mack, who I think that I remember knowing who she was when I saw it in two thousand one because she had been on Seventh Heaven, my little sister's favorite TV show, in the cutting episode, and I remember seeing the cutting episode and being told that's the girl uh, that Philip's doing hair with. And I know the name of the theater in Burbank. It's not there anymore. I don't want to say the name of it. I did. I tried to do detective work. All I could find about this production of Hair put on by teenagers in 2000, or yeah, the year 2000 in Burbank, was this old post on like an early 2000s message board posted by somebody. 
I won't say what their name is. I Googled their name and it turned out to be a dead name because they had transitioned since. But this person was also on Seventh Heaven. <laughs> Just like Allison Mack. So, yeah. There you go. I don't know if this matters. All I'm saying is I was, uh, this was before Allison Mack turned into a monster. <laughs> and um, I saw her in hair with my friend. So, there you go. I'm a very important person. I just got back from peeing what feels like the hundredth time I've had to pause this and go use the restroom. I'm sorry if this sounds choppy. Um, I had a lot of coffee because I did not sleep well because the French bulldog was in the bed and she, the French bulldog wanted to cuddle with me every five minutes and it kept waking me up. And so then I went and slept in the other room and was having waiter nightmares. Um, and if you've ever waited tables, uh, does anyone else have this? If you like wait tables and it's very busy and then you go to sleep and you have uh, nightmares that you're not bringing people's food and drinks that they want. Anyway, let me get back to hair. This is not about me. Um, I saw Ranta hair. Fuck. I saw hair a couple more times in the 2000s. And um, I'm going to tell you something. It's comforting to see nudity on stage when you're a teenager because you kind of get an opportunity to see, to see what real everyday human penises look like. And you feel a little less self-conscious about your own. Because other than that, I mean, the really the only penises you ever see are the ones in pornography. So, um, you know, just... And I'm talking about, like, regular community theater level penises. <laughs> and then finally, my last uh, brush with uh, the musical hair in my life was actually, like, maybe four or five years ago. I was looking at casting notices on backstage and there was an audition for hair. I think it was in Orange County. And I read all of the instructions for auditioning. And there was a nudity call that was very detailed. <laughs> Meaning like after you sang and did your dancing and everything, you had to be nude in front of the production team. And it was like, this is how it's going to go. There will be this many people in the room. You will be provided with a bathrobe. You will then disrobe and stand there and then turn around and then put the robe back on. So first of all, that's weird because isn't the whole point is that, you know, it's weird that they want to make sure everyone looks good naked in their production of hair when it really is supposed to just be, <laughs> you know, freedom and whatever. But um, I kind of, even though I didn't want to be in this production of hair in Orange County, I kind of wanted to do that because it sounded exciting. Like, you, you don't get to do that every day. Uh, go be naked in front of strangers. For, you know, and not uh, have someone call the police. So I almost did it. It sounded uh, like an interesting life experience, but I didn't. So anyway, um, let's talk about the show, Hair. And there's also a movie of Hair, which is probably one of the most, the, the most radical departures from stage to screen of any music, movie musical. Like, very, very different. Um, but the show itself, there are a million songs, um, and the ones that everybody knows, uh, Aquarius, this is the dawning of the age of Aquarius, uh, Good Morning Starshine, Let the Sunshine In, and to some extent, Easy to Be Hard, is that Three Dog Night version of it, uh, and a lot of people did a version of that. So, um, the thing is, that it's a very inactive plot, like two things happen in the story. Basically... Claude gets drafted, and we try to find out if he's going to go to war or not. And 
Sheila buys her boyfriend Burger a shirt and he rips it and her feelings get hurt. Those are the two plot points of the entire show with those three leads. Every time somebody puts this on, um, and I, it's actually right there in the script, in the libretto, it starts with people just like hanging out on stage while the audience is coming in. Uh, just like, how's it going? And then it ends with people in the audience being dragged on stage, which is my worst nightmare. And I think a lot of people's worst nightmare. Um, I, that sucks. Uh, don't ever do that. Please don't ever do that. Unless it's like the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee and you opt in. <laughs> but don't force people to come on stage and dance. The, the people hate that, America. Don't do that. So yeah, like I said, I read the script because uh, I hadn't seen it on stage in a couple decades. I found an illegal PDF of it. And boy, oh boy, like so much pseudo-poetry and pseudo-comedy. Like, that whole monologue that Berger does towards the beginning, it's just like, dude, shut up. Man, it's like spending time with a, a drugged-out guy that is not making any sense. There's, there's very little joy to be found in it. And um, his song, Donna, is like a it's, it's a... it's a it's a good song, melodically. It's weird that it's about a 16-year-old virgin... Um, Although we learn later that he's in high school, even though he really doesn't seem like he is or sound like he is. Then there's a song called Hashish, and it's like, whoa, man, they're talking about drugs. And, you know, when, I, when you're young, it's just very exciting just to have the drug that you like being name-checked. And I actually, when I heard the original cast recording in high school, I was prescribed Dexedrine. And when I heard it being name-checked, I was like, hey, what's up, Dexedrine? I was taking it for ADD because, you know, times had changed at that point. It wasn't, uh, you know, considered, uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, recreational, you know, speed, speed kills San Francisco. Um, and then, oh boy. So the song Sodomy, it's a, there's a can of worms here. Sodomy is another list song, just like Hashish, but it's a list of naughty sexual things. And... Uh, I'm not the only one, certainly, that's had this insight. You get, there's a, one of these things is not like the other situation with this, right? When the things he's listing, sodomy, fellatio, uh, names all these things that are, uh, sex acts and things. Uh, but then he says, pederasty. That's not really the same as sodomy, fellatio, cunnilingus, masturbation, holy orgy, Kama Sutra. Like that one is um, probably should not be included in your sexual revolution. And this is one, this one thing that's kind of mind-blowing to me about the 60s and the way that we think about certain figures of the 60s. And when you look back... Uh, on figures like Gore Vidal or Allen Ginsberg, it's a little bit mind-blowing how blasé they were about pedophilia. Um, and, you know, the, the homophobes, for instance, uh, you know, a decade later, did the awful thing of equating homosexuality with uh, pedophilia, which is horrible. And, you know, people on the right still do that. And they're all assholes and they should go fuck themselves. But 
the, you know, Nambla was going on. And Allen Ginsberg, you know, the poet of uh, Howell, like was pretty active in that. And so was Gore Vidal. And it was kind of for some of them, at least temporarily, like part part of their <sighs> liberation there was some acceptance of that and it's not really talked about. And I look, I, I don't even want to talk about it. So I'm going to stop talking about it. Suffice to say, sexual homosexuals are not uh, all pedophiles. Uh, in fact, uh, there are very few of them are. So uh, all I'm saying is it's weird. It's weird that that word is in that song. And that's sung by a guy, a character named Woof. And, you know, he's got a monologue that's all just like, Look at the moon, sunflower seeds, and beets, and corn, and sweet peas, and moon vines. So, the big problem with hair is that it's conflating two things. It's conflating that feeling of artistic transcendence that you get when you're on drugs, and the words that are said by that individual having that experience. And it's just, it's, it's showing you the latter. And just hearing, you know, druggy artistic transcendent words that sucks it's like hearing somebody's dream it's boring and it's usually meaningless it's the difference between listening to a song by Sufjan Stevens and listening to the stage patter of Sufjan Stevens during his concert where he's just like yeah lights and and explosions and <laughs> earth mothers and ditto with the humor like, it stinks of the common bad writing mistake where someone's like, oh, my friends and roommates are so funny. We should have our own sitcom. They're so funny. That's kind of what Rado and Ragno were doing here. Ragni and Rado. Did I say that right? Um, but what's funny while hanging out is not necessarily funny in a story, which, you know, I don't have any writing know-how or experience or training, but I feel like that's something that people should learn. <laughs> Your friends are not as funny as you think they are. Um, there's a song called Manchester, England, England, uh, which is a very catchy song, and they repeat it a few times, and the intro sounds a lot like the Sesame Street theme song, and you like that song, but I gotta call the Emperor naked here. Like, why does Claude say he's from England when he's from Flushing, Queens? And also, like, why? What's the reason for that? Other than just being annoying and like, hey. And also, like, why does he then call Roman Polanski his countryman? Like, I get that he's Claude Hooper Bukowski. So he's saying in the song that he's British and that he's also Polish. I don't understand. I'm sorry. Maybe I'm not getting it, but I feel like I am. There's nothing to get. Uh, please call in, as always, call in to the show. There's no phone number to call. Write me an email uh, somehow. Or put a, I don't know, an iTunes comment and let me know why that's happening, if there's a reason for it. Or please validate me and say, Chris, there is no reason for that and you were right to be confused. Um, is this a musical theater I want song, by the way? Manchester, England, England, based on that second chorus. Now that I've dropped out, why is life dreary, dreary? Claude wants something more, man. And then the song, I Got Life, there's all this dialogue before it that is on the album. Where, what do you got, 1968? I'll tell you, I'll, if you really want to know, 1948. It's 1968 in conversation with 1948. And 1968 is telling 1948, I got life, brother. I got laugh, sister. I got life. And then you may have a list of uh, all of the things that you have on your body. I think it's a fun song. I think that if you can imagine 
how exciting it was in the 60s when we're breaking out of conformity, there is some life in that song. Uh, it is kind of hard to swallow now because it's an expression of individuality and individuality is killing us in America today. We needed it in 1968, but now we've got too fucking much of it. We need a little collectivism. Rudolf Steiner uh, in the early uh, 20th century, like 190-something, uh, predicted this. He said, by the end of the 20th century, it'll be impossible to educate anybody because there will be a drive of individualism that will have ruined all of our brains and our leaders will be weak. And here we are. 20 years after the end of the 20th century, and it's pretty sure that they're pretty... Uh, yeah. Also, Adam Curtis's documentary series, Can't Get You Out of My Head, is all about this. I highly recommend everybody watch that. It's really good. Um, individualism, uh, not always good. Let's all uh, be the same. Let's stop being snowflakes. Shut the fuck up, Claude. And shut the fuck up, Chris. Uh, the song Going Down is a decent song. It's fun. It's very interesting listening to the soundtrack because I have not revisited hair in so long and I did the same thing with hair as I did with every original cast recording as a teenager I memorized all the songs of the parts that I felt like I was qualified to play and like memorize and sang them in my bedroom um so that song's catchy and it's decent uh it's a little repetitive because it keeps drawing on this analogy Berger gets expelled from high school and he's doing this tortured analogy between getting expelled from high school and Lucifer falling from heaven and he just keeps doing it over and over and over again and uh, the whole idea of uh, evoking the name of Satan or Lucifer, it's, uh, this is something I've been thinking about lately and released in the last couple of years. Like, because I was curious, like, what is a Satanist? Outside of just being like, fuck you, mom and dad, or fuck you, Christianity I was raised in. What does it mean to be a Satanist? What do you actually believe? Like, what is Lucifer? <laughs> And um, the reason, what made me think about this is uh, my sister lives in San Jose and they have this wonderful thing called Christmas in the Park in San Jose where there's all these Christmas trees and uh, everybody sort of gets to sponsor, I guess, a Christmas tree or decorate their own tree. And there's this controversy. I don't know if it's happening anymore, but every year there was a tree put up by the Satanists of Santa Clara County. There was a club that had their tree and they had like pentagrams and shit on this Christmas tree. And it would, it would always, always create a big stir. People would vandalize it and then they would come back and fix it and there would be a whole deal. And I, it made me curious and it made me want to look on the website of the Satanists of Santa Clara. And if you read their website, and I don't know if this is true of all Satanist groups, it's all just like um, the, about the evils of organized religion and Christianity, Protestantism in particular, and Catholicism, I guess all Christianity. Which is, it's funny. So I, I don't know what Satanism means other than uh, how it defines itself except in contrast or in protest to Christianity, which is why like um, the only reason maybe there's Satanist iconography in death metal is as an act of rebellion. But uh, at the end of all that rebellion, you know, your mom and dad don't live forever. They die. So what, what are you doing now? What do you believe in when my dear old mom and dad die? Satanists. <laughs> Probably, uh, I don't know. I could be completely wrong about this. If there's a set of uh, core values that are worthwhile in Satanism, please uh, give us a, a, put that in your iTunes review also. And then, yeah, yeah, or maybe don't do that. That sounds like a can of worms. This whole, I, this was all a bit of a detour. 
There's a whole segment where uh, somebody named after Margaret Mead that isn't exactly Margaret Mead comes in and played by a man uh, as a transvestite. And transvestites are always funny, right? In the 1960s. It's funny if a man is dressed like a woman. Uh, I'm being sarcastic, of course. That's what's annoying about this. The whole joke is that it's a man dressed as a woman and it's a shame. Um, and they have that song, uh, the My Conviction. And then they got easy to be hard because Sheila gives Berger a shirt that's yellow and he doesn't like yellow and he does a whole funny thing and then he rips it. And then that song, boy, this is actually a very theme-heavy episode, which is good, actually. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> uh, easy to be hard because uh, he hurts her feelings. And uh, especially people who, why do people have to be so heartless? Especially people who care about strangers, who care about evil and social injustice. Do you only care about the bleeding crowd? How about a needing friend? I need a friend. So that brings up a couple of thoughts. First of all, um, I mean, that's interesting. It's too bad that's not explored more. I mean, the, the thing that's a little dissonant about that is we don't really see Burger giving that much of a shit about the bleeding crowd. He's kind of just being a court jester the whole time. There's very little, especially in the first act of this, there's very little uh, hippie ideals. Like I said, it's a lot of aesthetics. But um, the political junkie question, it's like, I do think that there is such a thing as being very socially conscious and altruistic uh, happening and that happening in concert with being a little bit unkind to the people that you actually meet in the flesh and blood. I've been guilty of this myself for sure. Uh, I have, uh, and I think that what you uh, maybe it's just because it's fifty years later, but these these hippies are extremely unkind. It's sixty years later, by the way. I had the the count off on that. Like the, the these hippies are not very nice in the movie, uh, for sure, and in the show. So, yeah, interesting that you can be all about uh, peace and also be a dick. But um, that's, that's, that doesn't mean, for instance, that, and this is something that used to annoy me, is like if somebody, if you tell someone you're a pacifist, which I, I am, I identify as one, <laughs> and I always have. If I said I'm a pacifist and then they <clears throat> punch you in the arm and then you'd punch them back, you're like, I thought you were a pacifist. <laughs> No, I am totally in favor of punching you after you punch me. I'm just not in favor of foreign policy that kills women and children. And I think that common sense should prevail in cases like that. So shut up, people that say that. Uh, I like Jerome Ragney's voice as Berger. It's very 60s. He sounds like he's um, on the Frank Zappa records <clears throat> from the time period. The, we only, we're only in it for the money. And that's kind of disappeared. You don't hear that anymore. It's a very, I, and I don't know how to imitate it. I don't want to show you. I don't want to try to do it. But it's the 60s, I'm just kidding around voice. Like, I'm the funny guy. Uh, I'm thinking of that crazy for the blue, white, and red. I just said I didn't want to imitate it. And then I tried and it wasn't good. And then James Rado has the serious 60s voice. Like, that's like, where do I go? Like, he's singing seriously. And then Berger is, eh. <laughs> Stop trying to imitate it. You can't do it. Frank Mills is a cutesy little character song. Um, but it's condescending, you know? Like, it's really... It's like, look at this dumb hippie girl. It sounds like it was written by her parents, you know, generation. The fact that she's waiting for this guy. 
uh, yeah, or anyway, I don't want to go into too much. Listen to the song Frank Mills and tell me if that's you think that that's written by someone that thinks hippies are in the right on any level. It sounds like a, a parody written by a square. Electric Blues, uh, that's the one with the, oh, actually the Act 2 opener, I think, where the, the old-fashioned melody. Do, 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 do. I'm trouble hearing. Can you say that again? No. Mind your fucking business. No one's talking to you. Did I say anything that sounded like her name? I know I did earlier. Anyway. Didn't quite get that. Shut up! Tell me again. Alexa, forget it. Never mind. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. Um... Where was I? Oh my God, that really threw me off course here, guys. Uh, okay, so uh, Galt McDermott, the composer, it feels like he's desperate to step outside of the rock music genre any chance he gets. Because there's a lot of these, like this one, Electric Blues, uh, and that uh, My Conviction song, where he, <laughs> he he's not a rock and roll guy or a hippie, and he really, really wants to just write more old-fashioned music and so like it pops in from time to time what a piece of work is man a little bit later and like as promised i'm not going to uh call out problematism and things but uh oh black boys are delicious dude you know it's just like brown sugar by the rolling stones very weird to hear it today but if you think about it you know in the context of the 1960s you have to understand interracial marriage bans had just been struck down by the supreme court so it kind of is a celebration of like interracial sexual attraction. <laughs> but I, you know, the obvious thing now is uh, you're kind of, uh, you know, uh, objectifying by calling them, equating them with chocolate or brown sugar. This is followed by white boys, which is also dude. It's and it's sung by the black women in the cast about how pretty white boys are. It's really funny to think of the white boys who wrote this, like uh, handing this sheet music to the black actresses. It's very funny to think about that. Um, yeah, the, oh, that unpleasantness ends, and then we get into "Walking in Space," which is a really nice song. Drugs, drugs, drugs. It's pretty. It's a pretty song. They change the lyrics. Because uh, they're talking about all the dri drifting from Pottsville to Mainline, drifting from Mainline to something. They took that out because they didn't at that at a certain point they were like people should not be mainlining uh, their drugs, uh, their speed, and their heroin. This seems to be killing these hippies, and they changed it to Starline. Uh, no more. Don't drift from Pottville to Mainline. And also, marijuana is not a gateway drug. Uh, that's all bullshit. But we believe that for another 30 or 40 years. Uh, I wonder if people still believe that. <clears throat> Aby Baby uh, is a very catchy song. I won't get into the lyrics of that song. Uh, suffice to say, that's the uh, song where they say, Immense a motherfucking pater of the slaves. It's uh, my friend Philip sang this song uh, along with the other, you know, I'm Black song. And that Colored Spade song, which is rough. Um, and it's part of the whole drug trip thing. They're having a trip and they're seeing Abraham Lincoln. And um, speaking of the N-word, <laughs> uh, which we were, you know, in the Colored Spade song, they say it, uh, the black man says it at least, but in 3500, it's a real good song until uh, the whole cast says the N-word. That song, like, it seems like a song from that, like, uh, Bob Fosse would have 
uh, taken on the, the sequence of it. And it's really the only anti-war song of the show, really, or the only halfway serious one. It's taken from a long poem by Ginsburg, the better asked. Um, <clears throat> and uh, he uses that N-word. And the poem is called uh, Wichita Vortex Sutra. Uh, but that number 3500 comes from, uh, there was a military correspondence in 1966 where they, uh, they told McNamara's office, uh, Viet Cong losses leveling up 3500 per month. And at that point, I, I, I think, and I could be wrong about this, don't write in on this. I'm, I, I, it's too much piling up. I may be so ignorant about all of this. Um, I think at the time of the show, uh, 1968, 3500 we were talking about this like isn't this a terrible thing that all of these uh we we have killed all of these Viet Cong uh however we learned later that all of that was a lie uh that uh Daniel Ellsberg with his Pentagon papers uh, we were not making the progress that we thought we were I mean nobody should have died Americans or Vietnamese but um whatever man shut up Chris and then um you know they do so they're taking, they're borrowing from Ginsburg, they're borrowing from history, and then they borrow from Shakespeare with What a Piece of Work is Man, which kind of sucks. They turn it into a two-part harmony song that isn't very good. I haven't been criticizing the craft of the songwriting much here, uh, which I normally do, because I kind of feel like it's my wheelhouse, even though I'm not, I'm a semi <laughs> I'm not even a semi-professional in this field, but um it seems like a waste of time to criticize the songwriting here because it feels like, you know, at least on the lyric level, like they're not really trying that hard. <laughs> so why bother? Because you end up with shit like, oh, Dr. Lincoln, my head needs shrinking. Lulu, 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 Lucifer and me. Like that's not anyone that's trying to write good lyrics. They're just trying to be free form. And then you get, you know, song, 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 sing, 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 song. The point is that we're singing. It's not what we're singing. So why even criticize it? The last song of Hair almost redeems the whole show because it's such a banger. And I'm talking about the flesh failures slash let the sunshine in. Um, the lyrics there are, of course, a little silly. The wearing smells from laboratories, facing a dying nation stuff. But the let the sunshine in refrain... It's really great in the way that it goes from minor to major. Like it uh, strikes the perfect tone for how the show ends. It's just, uh, it's a strong way to end hair. So I think that that's uh, one of the good things about hair, the show, is that let the sun shine, let the sun shine in, the sun shine in. Like the last bit of that, it goes uh, from a minor key to a major key. And we're kind of mourning the fact that we're, uh, Claude went to war and that we're at war, but we're also asking the sunshine to, to let the sunshine in. And so it's, uh, there's some hope. And the fact that they do it so many times, it's like, it's good. It's, it's a nice ending. The film of Hair um, is very, it's interesting because, uh, so it's, it's way later. It's 1979 and that makes a big difference. At this point, it's like a retro thing. And they say that, uh, at least in the Wikipedia of it, and I watched the movie. I didn't just read the fucking Wikipedia. I'm committed to this podcast. And so I sit through these things. <laughs> um, they, they say it's set against the backdrop of the hippie counterculture. 
And that's a good way of putting it because it really is not about hippies anymore. It's like a story about a couple of people that happen to be hippies or no hippies. It got great reviews. Uh, Rado and Ragno hate the movie, or they hated it at the time. Are they alive? I didn't check. Anyway, they said that um, the hippies were portrayed as oddballs and some sort of aberration without any connection to the peace movement. Shit, man. I, I know you are, but what am I? I mean, that's kind of how I feel about the show, honestly. You know. So, they did that too. They're hypocrites. The movie's fine. Like, it's entertaining. It's a little silly. Milos Forman is a great director. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Amadeus, etc. Twyla Tharp does the choreography, which is great. I took a dance class. I required dance class. I went to a performing arts magnet in middle school. And instead of PE, when you were in the arts magnet, you had to take dance. And at first I was like, this sucks. But that was like the best part of the school was the dance program. And I learned so much about uh, these uh, choreographers, uh, Isadora Duncan, Twyla Tharp, uh, and so on. Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd. <laughs> and um, yeah, Twyla Tharp, there's a great documentary about her. And the dancing in this is great. I don't know much about dancing, uh, but I enjoy the dancing in this. You got Treat Williams, who actually we just lost him in a motorcycle accident. Uh, rest in peace, Treat Williams. He plays Burger. Beverly D'Angelo, uh, she plays Sheila, but a very different Sheila. John Savage plays Claude, a very different Claude. We get our friend Annie Golden from the original cast of Assassins, Squeaky Fromm. She's in this playing uh, Jeannie. I forget what they call her, the pregnant one. We get Donnie Dacus from the band Chicago and Badfinger. I don't know if he's in the original lineup of either of those or if he just joined. So they try to make a story out of this. They abandon the whole form and they just they say, let's tell a Hollywood story. And in doing so, they kind of turn it into a, into a jukebox musical. And for God's sake, let's not talk anymore about jukebox musicals. Last week's episode, uh, we talked that to death. The lip syncing feels awkward in this. I don't think that they had... They, this may have been some transitional period in movie musical making where uh, it wasn't working out very well. But it really feels like people are lip syncing and that they're not singing in real time. Um, and that the people, uh, there's actually no static way to do this in movie musicals and it keeps changing. Once we get to this Les Miserables episode that I've been teasing over and over and over again, um, you'll find in that movie musical that uh, it really feels like the people are singing in a room with an echo and that has uh, varying degrees of success. There's really only four friends, not counting Claude, like there's four hippies that are hanging out. Like for certain group numbers, they'll have a bunch of hippies come run on and join them. But it's really just Burger, Genie, HUD. Um, is that it? Oh, and Woof. That's right. <laughs> and then Claude comes on board. And Aquarius, that's all in the park. Uh, and there's all these, there's a lot of horses in this. Equestri Equestrian! Equestrian! I didn't just come up with that. I thought about that in advance. Um, I don't want you to think that I, you know, have improv skills or anything. So uh, there's a whole part in Aquarius where the police on horseback come in, mounted police come in, and the hippies start dancing, and then the horses start doing the hippies dance, and the police are like, hey, what's going on here to their horses? It's very silly. Uh, and the whole arc of the story is like, um, so Claude is from Oklahoma, and he's for some reason, coming to New York City to enlist in the army. Um, 
I meant to look that up. Like, why did that happen? Why didn't he just go to an induction center closer to Oklahoma? But then he gets in a fucking Greyhound bus and comes to New York City and stops by Central Park and meets all these hippies. I'm sure maybe there's a reason. Maybe they explain it and my ADD uh, lost that detail. But but then he hangs out with them and they get him high and he sings. They sing Manchester, England, England. Why? They just decide that Claude is from England. Or Berger decides it in this one. I don't understand this business of pretending you're English. So stupid. And then they get they get real high. They sing a lot of songs. They have a big party. And then the next morning, this is a small detail, um, Berger, played by the late Treat Williams, urinates on like a wall. And his stream is insane. He has got a heavy, thick stream of urine that nobody, like he looks like a horse. Uh, hey, hey there, there's that horse again. I think Milos Forman is a fan of horses. Because uh, his characters pee like horses, and there are a lot of horses in the movie. Um, this is something that uh, in the next show we're going to talk about, Rent. Um, in the movie version of that, they do the exact same thing where they're like, let's take these bohemian hippies and put them at a fancy garden party. Um, there's really no reason to do that. I guess they're trying to draw a contrast, but it's I, I don't like it in either movie. I think it's a mistake. And in this one, there's they, some... Uh, you know, just every fucking trope in the book. They go to the movie. So in the movie, they go to this party. And Berger ends up dancing on the table of the party. And everyone's like, oh, what's happening? Oh, And then there's a saucy old lady who's like into it. And it's like, oh, ha, ha, ha. That old lady is uh, full of beans. And she wants to dance. Treat Williams, um, I don't know if it's his voice. Boy, I didn't do very good research this week. But he's doing that false, the Jesus Christ Superstar falsetto. You know what I mean? Where they go, ah! like he does a lot of that. I will turn that down in post. Sorry if that was loud. Um, Berger is a creep in this uh, to Sheila with the feeling up of her leg. And that's the whole thing we could get into. And let me just briefly address it. Um, this whole sexual revolution thing. It's funny, um, the women's role in the sexual revolution, and I know that this has been talked to death. There's a great, uh, if you ever want to have some real fun, watch Hugh Hefner uh, talking with these feminists on, I think it's the Dick Cavett show, having a debate. And I like after the fact, he was like, these feminists got mad at us, and I, I was at a loss because I, these, you're our partners in the sexual revolution. It's like, are they really, dude? Or are you? is your freedom... <laughs> is it about your freedom to feel them up? Uh, which seems to... He seems to think it is. And Berger seems to think it is. Uh, and that's that's too bad. Whatever, man. Um, during uh, the song Hair, give me a head of hair, a long, beautiful hair, that happens in jail. And there's dancing prisoners, and that's stupid. And then, like... So Berger goes home to his parents because he wants to get his friends out of jail. That's part of this plot. And his dad says, if you cut your hair, I'll give you money. And uh, it's like, and he's like, fuck you, dad. What an asshole. Cut your hair. Your friends are in jail. <laughs> anyway. Uh, and then he cuts his hair later to do another thing to help a friend. So anyway, that's a weird thing. Milos Foreman, uh, in his acid trip scene, he shows incredible restraint. Because in the 1970s, boy, oh boy, there's so many acid trip scenes in these movies in the 70s that are, like, in his, like, it's very theatrical. Um, and it kind of feels like, 
it actually does a good job because Claude is in this version. He's really not a hippie. He's a kid from Oklahoma, a guy from, uh, you know, a cowboy. And it kind of shows what the acid experience of a non-hippie would be like. It reminded me of uh, in the Mad Men season four when Roger Sterling does acid. That's like, that's one of my favorite scenes in the whole series where he like takes the, the, the top off of the bottle of vodka and hears like really scary Russian <laughs> opera music. And then, um, you know, sees the, his baseball heroes and is giggling. Um, what's weird is that it's so theatrical, but it's such a departure from the show. You know, and he's also his whole like uh, obsession with Sheila. And by Sheila in this is not a she's a fucking like a debutante on a horse in this that like then becomes friends with the hippies. And Claude has this completely substanceless love of first sight with her, which is and it's very stupid. And eventually they're hanging out and they go swimming and we see Beverly D'Angelo's tits, which we basically see in every movie. Beverly. D'Angelo's ever been in. We see it in National Lampoon's Vacation and so on. And uh, boy, what a difference a couple decades makes, or one decade makes rather, uh, from 1968 to 1979, where it's like the nudity in the show is all about like, let's just strip ourselves down to our essence and show our nudity. And then in 1979, it's like, tits, let's show tits, because that's what we do in the 70s. You gotta, it's, it's a rite of passage to have a movie in the 70s is to see a woman's tits and to get aroused by them. Which is definitely the vibe of her nudity. It's, not, it's nothing like the nudity in the show. Michael Jeter shows up uh, with painted toenails and this whole thing. He, and, and that whole sh uh, song with the black boys, white boys, uh, they do a thing with it. Here's the thing. Am I wrong to find to look for logic in these things? Am I ruining everyone's good time? Like, are we just supposed to enjoy this movie and just be like, hey, toe-tapping songs? Maybe we are. Maybe this podcast is a fucking waste of time. But I'm an hour in, so let's keep going. They use walking in space as a backdrop for the army basic training, which makes no sense. A fucking jukebox musical uh, misstep. There, we then get this whole subplot with HUD, the black hippie, with his fiance, who he has abandoned to be a hippie, uh, and they have a child together, and she comes, and it's like, hey, where, like, wh what's happening? Why did you abandon us? And he says, like, don't you understand cosmic consciousness, man? And then she asks him, have you impregnated this other woman? And he's like, You're, you got all these hangups. What an asshole! But then, you know, the re resolution of this is not for HUD to realize that he's being awful, and that he's abandoned He's abandoned his child! But then she hangs out with the hippies and brings the kid and like joins their hippie life. That's the solution. After singing Easy to be Hard, it's not for HUD to do the right thing. It's for her to fucking let go of her hangups and hang out with them. Very weird. Anyway, and then, you know, there's a whole thing. Uh, there's a mistaken identity thing. Burger takes Claude's place in the army, ends up getting shipped off to... <laughs> Vietnam, and then shockingly, Berger dies as a casualty of the army, and it's it's kind of shocking. Uh, it's it's kind of jarring. And then they sing the flesh failures and let the sunshine in. And the last shot of the movie is all of these hippies running up to the White House in a protest in front of the White House. But what do they do when they get to the White House? Do they force their way inside and tell Nixon to, uh, that we're 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 uh, commandeering the White House and? We, no, they have a party. They just sit out there and they have a party. 
And Nixon probably looks out the window and he says like, hey, fuck these kids. And then he drops another bomb on Cambodia. And then the hippies have another party to protest that. And then they drop a few bombs on Laos and another one on Cambodia and some more in Vietnam. And nothing changes. So there you go. Final thoughts on hair. I have to get on to the main event here, the one that you all uh, came on board for. I'm all for breaking rules and defying conventions on Broadway. But in order to do so, it helps if you have a point, a reason for doing that. A couple years later, Sondheim is going to do Company on Broadway, and that has a point. It has a purpose and innovation. It also breaks rules. It defies conventions. It, uh, you know, does not have a uh, linear story, and that freaks people out. But it's endured, and it's still you can do still still do Company today, and people can see the value in it. I would argue you can't really see the value in hair today, except as an album. So you can't just do a musical that's a musical theater version of the new hip thing, which is what these guys tried to do. And, you know, they're in the middle of this movement that has, that, that there are people in that movement that had brains and ideals and a reason for protesting what they were protesting, but that is all missing from that show. Hair. The show is all about coolness. So I would recommend just listen to the original cast recording and rock out to it. Don't see hair. Don't see the movie. Um, there you go. All right, I just went to the bathroom for the 700,000th time. I have 19 minutes until couples therapy. There's no way I'm getting through this other show, uh, Rent, in that amount of time because boy, oh boy, do I have things to say about Rent. So I'm probably going to have uh, do, the, <laughs> do this piecemeal. Uh, I, I'll, after therapy, you'll see if my tone has changed at all. Anyway, so um, I have a really uh, nice little bridge, though. Nice little uh, segue from uh, hair into rent. And it has to do with our old friend, Stephen Sondheim. Uh, now, as you may or may not know, the late Jonathan Larson, who wrote Rent and died, um, you know, right uh, at the final dress rehearsal, uh, he... Stephen Sondheim was mentoring him. And Stephen Sondheim, of course, is a wonderful mentor. Mentor. <laughs> he, to him, teaching is a sacred profession. And nearly anyone that ever wrote Stephen Sondheim a letter saying, I am a aspiring composer and um, I would love to meet you or get some advice from you, he gets back to them and says, yeah, well, I'll, I'll meet you on the corner in 10 minutes. <laughs> So I sure, I really missed my window on that, folks. Uh, I, first of all, did not live in New York City, but also maybe probably never would have had the balls to uh, <laughs> write him a letter. But anyway, um, so Sondheim is helping Jonathan Larson with rent, giving him notes, etc. And there's this letter that was like, wow, really interesting to read. Um, written by Jonathan Larson to Stephen Sondheim in December of 1994 where he took Sondheim's notes and he's trying to, he's embarking on another draft, but he also, he wants to like announce his intentions for the new draft before he writes them. And here's what he says to Sondheim in the letter. One thing I said to someone who was more of a traditionalist like yourself was that I was going for a messy, explosive reflection of Bohemia a la hair, which I seem to recall you don't like. <laughs> but I was reminded that even hair has a concise dramatic question. Will Claude go to war? At best, my question is, will Roger open up and feel something? 
So there you go. This is intended to be the central question of rent. Will Roger open up and means uh, feel something? So let's get into it, folks. Let's talk about rent. Let's do this. How are we going to pay? How are we going to pay? How are we going to pay last year's rent? The year is 1997. I had just started eighth grade at that performing arts magnet middle school that I discussed earlier. My sister, for her birthday, gets a two CD album, the original cast recording of Rent. She had gone and uh, seen it with my father, the theater critic, I believe, here, um, I want to say at the Amundsen, maybe at the, I don't know. Uh, Neil Patrick Harris was in it uh, as Mark. And she saw it, she liked it, didn't love it. My dad did not like it at all. Um, so I wasn't like that excited or curious about it, even though I already liked musicals. But after she absorbs this CD, um, and my sister was, uh, you know, uh, I have two sisters and I'm very close with both of them. Um, but uh, my, my older sister in a, sort of gave me uh, my uh, social education in a sense. And I, she invited me in her room at one point to uh, listen to the album Friend and read along with the disc bus booklet. And she, like, narrated the story to me, uh, skipping songs that she thought were boring. Um, I think that she skipped Over the Moon. She skipped Without You. Some of the, uh, yeah. Um, I found much of it shocking, um, the sex and drugs of it all. Uh, and I kind of, I don't know if I mentioned this on earlier episodes, I had, like, a fear of... Um, you know, young people life, Gen X uh, getting high and having sex. Like, I thought it was all very scandalous, even though I would have not been brought up religious in any sense. Um, and I found a lot of it bizarre. But overall, my feeling on first listening to it is that, okay, this is a dud. I don't like this. Cut to a year or two later, I am the biggest rent head in the San Fernando Valley. I have the entire show of rent memorized front to back. Um, I sit in school and I cast the show on a little notebook, uh, sometimes with my classmates, sometimes with movie stars. Um, I'm just, I'm obsessed with it. I'm darting around my bedroom, uh, performing the whole show as Mark, singing along with the OCR, and then uh, going through the whole show, starting right from the beginning, doing the whole show as Roger, doing the whole show as Collins. I buy the vocal selections uh, for the piano. I loudly sing What You Own in my living room. Basically, I put my entire Sondheim education on hold to worship at the altar of Rent. I love Rent. Finally, in, I believe, the year 1999, I get a chance to see it at the Schubert Theater. Rush tickets. I don't know if I'm right about this. I feel like, and I could be wrong, <laughs> I feel like Rent may have been the first show to do the thing where you wait in line for rush tickets for $20 that are in the first row. Anyway, we try once, and we get there, and we're too late. There's already, you know, 20 people in line. All the rush tickets are going to be taken. Uh, crestfallen. We try again. Uh, and this is me and my sister and all of my friends and my mom uh, is also there. So we get there real early in the morning. We sit in line all day. We get the front row seats. Um, Daphne Rubin Vega, the original Mimi, is in this production. Um, I... I'm having such an amazing time seeing the show. It's, I thought that I had been fluent in it just by listening to the album, but watching it on stage is the most exciting fucking electric experience of my youth. I'm like, 
my friends and my sister are sobbing at the end, like more than sobbing. They're like desperately, they're, they've fallen apart. Like my sister's like reaching her arm out to the actors on stage for some kind of absolution from them. And you know, I don't cry. I kind of like wish I had. <laughs> Sorry, it could be very interesting, but I don't, but I'm very moved. Um, and then I'm like even more into Rent than I was before. I start writing no day but today on my skin with a fucking ballpoint pen. You know, I'm walking around, you know, that's like my new philosophy of life. And I think in my mind, I'm expecting adult life to be some kind of hybrid between the people in the musical Rent and the people on the TV show Friends. And I can't wait to grow up. Because, you know, I think that's how it's going to be. But then I do grow up, and I find, in my early 20s, to my horror, that I can't stand the musical Rent. I figure out that it sucks, and I hate it. <laughs> I renounce Rent. And then my dad is like, I see, I told you, that's what I was telling you at the time. And he was saying, uh, he was likening it to hair, saying, yeah, yeah, it's gonna become, it's gonna age terribly in just a couple years. Which... It kind of did. Now, here's the other thing about Rent, guys. I saw it this week uh, in a couple different forms. Um, I really wanted to get out to the Chance Theater in uh, Anaheim to see it because they do great work over there, which is why I'm happy to say them by name. Um, but it closed before I got a chance to drive all the way the fuck out there. But I watched Rent filmed live on Broadway, which I had seen before and was like, this fucking sucks, in my 20s, this fucking sucks. Um, but uh, I saw it, I also watched the movie version, which is very, very bad, um, but I kind of came back around on Rent this week. I mean, I, I've always had affection for it, even when I thought it sucked in my 20s, like, but I even, I think I acknowledged like, okay, this thing is in me. And, um, but watching Rent filmed live on Broadway, especially in Act 2, I locked in. And I was like, wow, okay, I've made the uh, hero's journey um, away from home. And then I've come, I've circled back to the home. So this may come as a surprise to you, my listening audience, uh, the cynical asshole uh, that I am with all of the opinions. I need you to like Rent. Because when all is said and done, despite some glaring flaws, and we'll talk about them, Rent is good. Now, I know this may be controversial. <laughs> but, um, yeah, we're going to go through it. Um, I'm going to talk about this for about nine more minutes. Then I'm going to go to couples therapy. Then I'm going to talk about it some more. Um, it seems like a real feat, first of all, that um, they got all of these voices on the original cast. Like the voice, of course, of Adina Menzel, the voice of Jesse L. Martin, the voice of Adam Pascal. These are like really unique and satisfying voices. Now, maybe they are that way because they defined a new style of singing culturally after this, or maybe they just did for me. Maybe because I, you know, I may not have liked them initially and then just sort of got acclimated to them. But anyway, I, it's, it's kind of astounding that original cast. And a lot of them have, of course, gone on to other things. And Anthony Rapp, of course, already had a career before this. He had been in things as a child. Uh, Kevin Spacey, of course, was inappropriate with him. And then he, uh, they had a he, he, whole thing. And he was in Dazed and Confused. And 
Adventures in Babysitting. So, you know, he's kind of already quasi-famous. But the rest of these people, you know, of course, Adina Menzel goes on to uh, sing Let It Go and all that shit. But let's let's get into the history of Rent, of how Rent started. So, first of all, let's set the record straight on one thing. People that are, you know, only know the musical Rent from uh, a distance, an arm's length, it is so easy to assume that Jonathan Larson died of AIDS because he died the night of the final dress rehearsal and the show is largely about AIDS. He did not. Jonathan Larson died of an aortic aneurysm. It was a freak thing, unexpected thing. And he was not gay. He was a cis, straight, white male. He is Mark. He is the character of Mark. He is the observer that is neither gay nor dying of AIDS. And uh, then in 2023, that can bum people out when they find that out. Interestingly enough, the whole idea of the musical of Rent was somebody else's in 1988. Somebody named Billy Aronson had the idea to adapt Puccini's La Boheme. And he kind of talks to his buddy about it. Um, Jonathan Larson in 1989. And um, they kind of come up with the idea, Jonathan Larson rather, has the idea that, you know, all right, it'll be La Boheme, but instead of tuberculosis killing everybody in Paris in the 19th century, it'll be AIDS killing everybody in the East Village because that's an artistic community of Bohemians also. And this guy, he wanted, he had, the, Jonathan Larson has the idea to call it Rent. His guy he's writing with hates that idea. He does not like that. He talks him into it by telling him that the word rent also means to tear apart, which I did not know. So there you go. That's what rent means, to tear apart. Anyway, um, for most of the story of Jonathan Larson pre-rent, you can see the film Tick, Tick, Boom, which is a, sort of a hybrid uh, autobiographical musical and biopic of Jonathan Larson directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda which I enjoyed more than I thought I would I'm not going to talk about it a lot here because I eventually want to do a Tick Tick Boom episode so but you kind of find out in watching Tick Tick Boom uh, Jonathan Larson is obsessed with this bohemian life that he's living he, the, the fact that there's a bathtub in the kitchen that there's an illegal wood-burning stove and the fact that you have to throw down the key when someone comes over because the buzzer is broken. He, he is very much into romanticizing that life because he does it in both things. And th those are all elements in Rent. Uh, Mark and Roger uh, have to throw down the key and the wood-burning stuff. Like that, that was all uh, true to Jonathan Larson's apartment. And um, so, yeah. So the first thing that Jonathan Larson writes uh, is uh, Superbia. He writes this musical that's like a rock musical adaptation of George Orwell's 1984. Um, he takes it to the New York Musical Theater Workshop, New York Theater Workshop, and guess who's on the board there? Stephen Sondheim! He likes it. He thinks it has promise. Now, let me tell you something. After Sondheim, you know, after being interviewed after Jonathan Larson's death, he does uh, confirm that he thought there was promise in that. He does say that he, when Jonathan Larson did Tick, Tick, Boom, the one-man musical, Sondheim didn't like it. He said, quote, I didn't feel his work was progressing, and we talked about that. I felt there was more originality in Superbia. I worried he was getting desperate to be accepted, and it was starting to show in the work, 
It was getting more like everybody else who was afraid of being original. Yikes. And that's kind of true. You know, Tick, Tick, Boom, like it's got a couple good songs. 3090 is a great song. Um, and then there's maybe like that therapy song is like fun. But the rest of it is a little, yeah. But the movie's good. Andrew Garfield does a nice job. Um, then in 1996, Sondheim is interviewed talking about Rent. And this is something that's also very interesting. You kind of get the sense that Sondheim didn't like Rent and doesn't like Rent, but he didn't want to say as much. He says in his Finishing the Hat book that he doesn't, uh, you know, he only talks shit about the composers who are long dead. And even though he died, uh, how long? Let's call it 25 years after Jonathan Larson died. Uh, he didn't really want to insult his work, but he also didn't want to praise it. Uh, Mark Antony style. What? No, it's not like that at all. But he said, um, I think it is a work in progress. This is right after it was on Broadway and Jonathan was already dead. I think it is a work in progress. He wanted to put in everything and the kitchen sink, and he did. I think it suffers from that. <laughs> and then just one little Sondheim uh, tidbit, uh, and we'll get away from the master Sondheim that I can't seem to stop talking about, even though I changed the title of my podcast. Um, when Lin-Manuel Miranda, who also uh, was mentored by Stephen Sondheim, when he was making Tick, Tick, Boom, the movie version, he showed it to Sondheim. Sondheim is a character in Tick, Tick, Boom, played by Bradley Whitford, the asshole from The West Wing. Um, there was a line in it where he says to him on the phone, uh, Sondheim says to Larson in the movie on the phone, I have a feeling you're going to have a very bright future. Uh, Sondheim saw that and said to Lin-Manuel, I would never say that. <laughs> well, can we change it? Can I give you a note? I'd like you to change it to, it's a first-rate work and has a future, and so do you. I'll call you later with some notes if that's okay. Meanwhile, be proud. <laughs> so that's funny. And that's uh, when we uh, talked about Jason Robert Brown in the parade episode, his whole thing about Sondheim saying, uh, all you got to do is say, I loved it. And then if they ask for notes later, do it. That's very true to that, which I cannot stress enough. Please do that, everybody. Especially if you think you're some sort of artist with opinions that matter. Please just tell people that the thing was good and don't give them criticism unless they beg you for them way later. Thank you. Um, and then just a little fun fact. Uh, Lynn, somebody called Lynn Thompson, who was a dramaturge hired by New York Theatre Workshop to help uh, rework Rent. She uh, went to court claiming that she co-wrote the newer version of the musical with him. She lost in court. Uh, and, you know, this was after it was a huge sensation. She lost because she, uh, they, they, they caught her in a... They, she couldn't recite the lyrics that she claimed that she wrote. Which, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean she didn't write them, but whatever, you know, I, I, I could imagine someone forgetting lyrics that they wrote. That's happened to me. So, uh, whatever. Um, I want to go through the uh, trajectory of this. I would say the best entry point to rent, do not see the 2005 movie directed by Christopher Columbus. Please check out Rent filmed live on Broadway. That is probably the best entry point, even though it has flaws. It's really good. I hated it when I watched it uh, a decade or so ago, but I watched it this week and I loved it. Um, I'm going to pause this and come back and talk about Rent later, but it's not going to feel like time has passed to you. Okay, bye. And we're back. Okay, thank you for your patience. <sighs> I had an hour of couples therapy and then I had uh, what they call Chinese food. And so I'm feeling a little less manic maybe than I was in the first half of the episode. I've had something to eat. And I've had some uh, <laughs> a second dose of therapy, second helping. So here we are. We're talking about Rent. I watched Rent film live on Broadway. I tried to watch Rent the film 
first, and it's really not good. Uh, we'll talk about it later. Anyway, uh, is this, I forgot what the last thing I said. Is this repetitive? Let me just get into it. So trajectory-wise, the songs, the way that it goes. So on stage, I think that what I found is that my favorite parts of Rent are the conversational songs. The, uh, you know, recitative, if you will. Uh, like the tune-ups with the September 24th, <laughs> September, December 24th, 9 p.m., all that stuff. And, you know, uh, I like the life support song. I like all of basically everything that they cut out of the movie. But um, those are great. I love the tune-ups. Um, I don't love the voicemails. The first one here, of course, is um, Mark's mom. I don't understand what the point is of uh, these characters' parents. Is the point that their parents are bad or that they're annoying? You know, she sent you a hot plate and she gave you condolences on your breakup. So um, what's the deal with that? They even add a line in the movie where Anthony Rapp is, oh, I, some days I think, oh, my existence here is a fucking bohemian with my illegal stove is like, oh, I can't take it anymore. And then they call and then I remember. And it's like everything they're saying is nice and supportive if, if a little uh, square so it makes you kind of dislike these rent motherfuckers um, with the way <laughs> how mean they are about their parents calling. It'd be one thing if their parents were calling and saying uh, undermining things, but they aren't. So um, and then, of course, the let her be a lesbian in the 90s. It was funny just to say lesbian, even funnier to sing it in the way that uh, I just sang it in the way that Mark's mom sings it. There's so much like all the romantic comedies and especially the idea of the straight man getting dumped and the woman becoming a lesbian. That's huge in the 90s. Uh, the 90, uh, lesbian chic was a big deal back then. And, uh, you know, friends, of course, Ross's ex-wife, like the whole thing about Ross in season one is that his wife left him for a woman and on and on and on about that. And that's just supposed to be funny on its face and whatever. Uh, the title song of Rent is or was a banger. Uh, I enjoyed it. I like it when a lot of people um, have their, uh, join the opening number and sing their little section and then everybody sings together and there's some counterpoint. I really like that. Um, even though um, it's, it's a little antiquated the way that that song goes down. Like nowadays, just this, the, the orchestration of it. And there's a lot of moment like that in the score where it's like, I'm sure this was really dope <laughs> in 1996 with the electric piano. But right now it sounds uh, comical. It sounds like um, Muzak at the grocery store. Um, the one part in Rent, the title song, um, that I think is like so bad <laughs> um, is the mark when Maureen calls. It's just during the percussion. It's like boop, 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 and he goes, boop, 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 hello, Maureen, your equipment won't work. Okay, all right, I'll go. <laughs> and um, that's like a musical moment really trumping an acting character moment. Like it's really, I feel like it's hard to make that sound at all convincing. Your equipment won't work? Okay, all right, I'll go. Um, and that's just not very good if you ask me. After the title song, we meet the character of Angel. Um, the funny thing about Angel, so um, this one thing that came through to me on this rewatch is uh, Angel is like a great character. You know, it's, Really, uh, you you really do love Angel, and that setting that up in the first act, 
you know, today for you, we'll get into that. That's not a very good song. It might be the worst song, actually. But just uh, the, the whole thing of Angel getting him a coat and Angel being so sweet and forgiving and angelic, if you will. Um, that The way that they set that up and then the way that that pays off with Angel in the second act is really good. I will say, like, Angel's pronouns are all over the place in this. Um, and it's unclear, is Angel trans, is Angel a drag queen in the traditional RuPaul fashion? Um, because we go he and she and he and she. And so, um, I don't know, maybe it doesn't matter. But, um, yeah, One Song Glory, that sucks. Uh, that's certainly a musical theater I want song, isn't it? He wants uh, to write one song before he dies. I guess it doesn't suck. It's just, um, <clears throat> I don't know. It seems lengthy. In a show that uh, had a lot of forward motion, One Song Glory seems like it spends a little too time, too much time ruminating. I really love uh, Adam Pascal's voice. And we hear it in other things. He never did too much more. I know he's in School of Rock, of course. He's like in the band that kicks Jack Black out. Uh, he was in Aida, which I should revisit that at some point. When I was uh, a highly opinionated 17-year-old, I thought that was really bad. Maybe Aida is not as bad as I remember it to be. Light My Candle. You know, that's a song, again, that girls in high school want to sing with you. They want you to do it in karaoke with them. And, uh, well, I mean, when you're in high school, certainly. I don't do... Today, I, I don't, at uh, my age, do karaoke with high school girls. That would be wrong and weird. But, um... You know, even though it's the orchestrations are lame in the way that I talked about, and it's very cheesy, it is a good musical theater song, motivations-wise. Uh, the way that uh, they both have objectives and the song, the way the song culminates with her taking the drugs out of his back pocket, I think that that's uh, really well put together. I, I don't know how the fuck you drop your drug bag in the middle of someone else's apartment when you're in there for like 30 seconds. It's a weird, uh, it's a weird thing, hard to believe. And if you're a real drug addict, you know, from somebody that, you know, may or may not have been addicted to marijuana, and yes, it is possible, it can be addicted to certain people. Let's uh, put a stop to that rumor that marijuana is across the board non-addictive. You know, when you have something in your pocket like that, you're very conscious of where it sits in your pocket. So, um. I don't know if it's different when you're on heroin. Uh, maybe you're just uh, not good at much of anything when you're on heroin. <laughs> um, I never really thought about this before, but it is weird that Mark and Roger hang out with this professor. And it's unclear like how they became friends with Collins. Like, Was he their professor? Did they go to school in at, um, you know, not NYU, uh, MIT? Did they go to MIT? <laughs> um, whatever. Anyway, um, yeah, and then it gets into Today For You. Quite possibly the worst song in the show. The whole So the whole narrative about this dog, that's very puzzling. I didn't question it in high school because um, I assumed it was... I, I thought it was like, oh, that's humorous, or maybe there's something I'm missing. But first of all, why is it so cool that you killed a dog? Like, why is Angel, the character that, you know, we, we're being presented as quite literally an angel like she he she killed someone's dog for money so first of all yeah why is that so cool <laughs> even if the dog does bark a lot also you can't kill a dog by playing percussion on a pickle tub for too long dogs do not um commit suicide when they hear too much drumming i feel like if jonathan larson had not died when he did th this 
aspect of the show would have been cut out. Could be wrong. Could be wrong. It's just it's nonsensical. But then for so is the whole idea of not paying rent for a year and then <laughs> owing rent and being being outraged that you have to pay any rent. That's the thing I think in my 20s with made me first turn off to this and it's kind of a cliche like a lot of people have said that about the show like why do you feel you should get special treatment? Pay your rent. I got to pay my rent. You know, uh well, that's how it goes. That's that's the name of the game here. Don't hate the player, hate the game. Uh, and I guess they do hate the game. That's why they sing the whole song about it. Um, you know what's funny is I feel like going through these, it, it was almost like good song, bad song, good song, bad song, good song, gag song. Like there was a lot of that. I found that um, it's it's very hit and hit or miss, but almost like one at a time. Not always. So after today for you, the worst song. I really like the song. You'll see. They move it up in the movie to like to be the second song. Um, and I wonder if they let white guys play Benny or if I'm too old. Um, this idea, I, I, so the, just, the, I think the music of that is very of its time, but also really gets the scene across all of the stuff uh, that, that Benny is singing. I don't know. <laughs> Boy, I, am I more low energy in the second half after having lunch? It's quite possible. How awful, by the way, do you think that Mark's film is? Like, can you imagine how bad that film is? It's the same thing with hair. It's like, my friends are hilarious. I should make a thing about them. Who the fuck wants to see a documentary about a guy and his friends uh, just sort of walking around and bullshitting around and having dinner and meatless balls at the Life Cafe? I don't want to see that documentary. Sounds like a snooze. The Tango Marine is a bad song, uh, probably because it's pastiche. And it's supposed to be this big moment um, in this, uh, I guess, the forming of a friendship between Mark and Joanne. Uh, but uh, it doesn't really feel like it. They're really just bitching about. And then later, Mark, when he's talking about all of the wonderful serendipitous moments of that night, he says, why did Maureen's equipment break down? Assuming that him meeting Joanne and bonding with her was like one of the most important moments of that Christmas Eve. And what's the big fucking deal, man? It's not that, uh, you know, I get, I get that they bond uh, over time, but that song doesn't really, uh, whatever. I do like the life support song. See what I mean? Good song, bad song. That's a good one. I'm a fan of the musical scene. Heartbroken, watching the movie version that they just spoke all those lines. A fun fact. Uh, well, actually, it's not a fun fact, just a fact. It's kind of a sad fact. Uh, those little names in the life support scene, Gordon, Allie, Pam, Sue, those are uh, the names of... Jonathan Larson's real friends who died of AIDS. So it's like his tribute to them. It is funny how in whenever support groups are depicted in storytelling, usually TV or movies, um, they always have a leader rather than being a leaderless support group, which is, I think, far more common. Maybe that's just because I'm in 12 steps. Maybe these life support meetings, which are based on actual meetings. I didn't make note of what they were actually called. Like maybe those did actually have leaders. I don't know. But, um, you know, like Breaking Bad, when every time uh, Jesse goes to an N.A. meeting, the, uh, Jerry Reed plays the fucking like leader of the N.A. meeting, which I don't is I, that's not how that works. And he get, like goes around the circle and like, Jesse, how are you doing today? And like, hey, you t tell us more about that. It's more like group therapy than, uh, you know, a support group, whatever. Small detail. 
that laugh line in life support with Gordon, the, how do you feel today? Okay. Is that all? Best I felt all year. Then why choose fear? I'm a New Yorker. Fear is my life. There's like a problem with the pacing of that. Every time you see it, uh, the audience laughs after I'm a New Yorker. And then he has to sing Fear's My Life, which I think is intended to be the button on that. But it's like the point is already made. It's just a comic timing thing. I'm not a professional comedian, but I do think that that may be a problem. Then we get into Ah, ooh, tonight. Ah, 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 ah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that song is uh, catchy. Have a good time. Uh, Daphne Rubin Vega has a very unique voice, and she's great on it. Um, Rosario Dawson does a nice voice on it. Uh, in so in Rent film Lima, Rent filmed live on Broadway. Mimi is played by Renee Elise Goldsberry, the Angelica from Hamilton. Now I think she's amazing. Like she's very likable. She's great in everything. Obviously great in Hamilton. She's good in this, um, but she's not sexy. And I, <laughs> it's okay. Like that's not, it's just, this is the one moment where that kind of comes across because it's a little strippery singing out tonight. And when I saw it on stage, like I said, Daphne Rubin Vega was reprising her role, reprising her role uh, at the Schubert Theater in LA with uh, that cast, touring company, whatever it was. And, um, you know, as a 15 year old watching that, uh, <laughs> let's just say I felt weird that I was sitting next to my mom and my sister. You know what I mean? I was having a, have an experience of that that made me feel a certain kind of way. There's a line in there where she doesn't want to sleep in the city of neon and chrome because it feels too much, too damn much like home where the Spanish babies cry. Uh, okay. Are these babies from Spain or is this, is that the language? Do, do babies cry in Spanish? What, what's the deal with the Spanish babies crying? Is are they going ole in the middle of the crying sounds? I don't know. The Spanish babies. Is that, are they in Spanish Harlem? I don't know. Um, another day. That goes on for quite some time. Uh, Roger's like not that mean to her. I mean, he's being uh, emotionally distant. <laughs> but he, in fairness, he met her, just, just met her that night. And I'm, so, yeah, he's not that mean, except for when he's like uh, one of the best lines. Uh, is, uh, Excuse me if I'm off track, but if you're so wise, then tell me, why do you need smack? It's also unclear um, on a first viewing or first listing of that why Mimi is being so uh, philosophical in her response to him with the no day but today stuff. And obviously that pays off later in the show. One of the songs I used to skip because I was an ignorant teenager was uh, Will I? Question mark. And what a mistake. What a, that's a great song. That's a hell of a good song. And it's like, a, they sing it like a round, like a row, row, row your boat kind of round. And you don't really uh, appreciate it until you see it on stage and you realize that it's the backdrop of Roger's decision to leave the house because he hasn't left the house in a year and he just lives in his pajama pants. Etc. Then we got that on the street sequence. I God, I love it. Fucking terrible that they didn't sing it in the movie. But um, that bag lady thing with the who the fuck do you think you are? I don't need no goddamn help. You feel like that is Jonathan Larson reflecting a little bit on his white guilt, his own white guilt. It's a self-reflection. Um, it doesn't stop him from doing it. Like it doesn't end the project of making rent and it doesn't stop Maybe uh, Mark from filming homeless people uh, condescendingly. <laughs> but, uh, 
But um, anyway, just um, I like that. It's uh, it's it's a good time. I don't like the song Santa Fe, uh, especially when they sing it on the subway in the movie. Collins says he wants to hang out with people who are chatting not about Heidegger but wine. I don't understand what this bubble is that Collins is living in, um, where people are chatting about Heidegger and he just can't get away from these Heidegger conversations and he just wants to go someplace uh, where people chat about wine. I'm willing to bet that even in the bohemian uh, late 80s, early 90s of Manhattan, more people on a given day are walking down the street talking about wine than they are about Heidegger. I'm just going to go off out on a limb there. So um, that's, a, that's a shitty thing to say. I'll cover you the love song. Um, it's a little fast there, isn't it, fellas? You, you just met a couple hours ago. And uh, this love song, I mean, they're making some pretty serious promises to each other. You know, with a thousand sweet kisses. You know, wow. And I guess it ends up working out in the end. But um, you get a little concerned about people that are talking in such grand terms uh, after just meeting themselves on one night. Ditto with uh, later with Roger and Mimi, of course. And yeah. Angel, yeah, really good character. Well-rounded, funny, likable. This is one of the few songs that's filmed really well in the movie. I like Jesse L. Martin and Wilson Jermaine Heredia uh, walking around the city singing this song. It's nice. I liked it. I think that I had a little bit of like adolescent uh, homophobia when I first was getting into Rent. And I was like sort of on the surface being like, yeah, I think gay people are great. And, you know, I went to a arts high school and I ended up, uh, arts high school, and ended up having a lot of friends that were gay and, Etc. But I think I also d did have that, uh, uh, you know, teenage boy, uh, gay panic thing. And so I maybe like ed on f first getting into Rent was like, I shouldn't uh, sing along with I'll Cover You because that might make me gay. <laughs> anyway. Um, is that weird to say? Look, I'm just being honest. That was just how things were. I don't feel that way anymore, everybody. I'm a lot older now. Christmas Bells is one of my favorite songs in the show. Really good. Really good. Again, I just like a lot of people. Um, it's it's kind of the one day more. It's the all skate. Is it an all skate? I think it is. That's a term for a song like one day more where everybody sings. It's usually an act one finale. It is not in this case. It's near the end of act one. I really like it. I like Christmas Bells a lot. And there's the section of it with Mark and Roger is actually one of the most inter interesting musical moments of the show and it never gets reprised. Like there's a lot of themes that reprise over and over and over again. But um, that part where she's like, she said, would you light my candle? And she put on a pound and she wanted you to take her out tonight. Like that part is, uh, is pretty or it's interesting. It's, uh, it rocks. And uh, they only do it once. She was more than okay, but I pushed her away. I like it. Oh, okay. So all of the drug addicts in this show, uh, Cheese Town, very cheesy. The man and the drug addicts follow the man with his pockets full of the jam and all those slang words. They should have done the Arthur Lawrence Stephen Sondheim method of picking fake slang words. Maybe they did and they mixed them in with just too many real ones. It, they, they, it sounds ridiculous when they like, got any D man, got any C man. Got any X, any smack, any horse, any joogie boogie boy, any blow. Hey, you got any joogie boogie boy? 
need to go out and uh, score some Joogie Boogie Boy for Christmas. Uh, and the music on that sounds weird. I feel like Jonathan Larson did not hang out with junkies. And he's uh, saw them from a distance and then imagined what they might be saying. So there's some uh, wobbliness with the junkie talk in this. Maureen's performance fucking sucks. Uh, maybe it's only good when um, Adele Dazim does it. Uh, Adina Menzel. Uh, but because uh, in the rent-filmed live on Broadway, it's uh, some other lady that I didn't give a shit about. And it was just like, oh, God, shut up. And I feel that way most times that I see Rent. Um, and I think the character of Maureen sucks. I think the character of Maureen is uh, not that redeemable. <laughs> and that Joanne should get away from her. I think Joanne is being emotionally abused in that relationship. And she would be well advised to stop getting back together with Maureen. Because this idea of, hey, it's not my fault. People are staring at me. I just, I'm going to make out with the girl in the fucking rubber and you can deal with it. Uh, that's, a little, that, that's a little too big of an ask. So, no good. And anyway, um, Adina Menzel is, uh, is great. And she's aged very well. Um, so, yeah. I'm not anti-performance art. You know, I like, uh, you know, the one that's uh, the artist that's present. What's her name? I want to say Maria Sharapova, but I know that's not it. That's a uh, <laughs> tennis player. You know what I'm saying? God damn it. Abramovich, right? Marina Marina Abramovich? The artist is present. I like the concept of performance art when it's good. But I think when performance art gets depicted um, in like regular uh, uh, mainstream media, like plays or movies, it always looks silly. And that's too bad. It would be cool if, like, uh, Maureen did a performance that was, like, good and not uh, silly and laughable. But that would be hard to... Like, if you were able to do that, then you would have to not be a good writer of musicals, but a good performance artist or writer for a performance artist. And not everyone can do that. It's like when they do stand-up comedy in the movies. Like, every movie about stand-up comedy, or the two main ones, like um, Punchline from the 80s and then Funny People from the 2000s, the actual stand-up in the movie is not ever really funny because you have to... It's sometimes a function of the story. Okay, this is a good comedian and this is a bad comedian. But like uh, Seth Rogen, for instance, like his stand-up in Funny People is not funny. And I think we're supposed to think it is. It is, And the audience is laughing. Anyway, same kind of deal here. La Vie Bohème is good. I would have called that my favorite song. As a teenager, it's fun. It is a list song, just like the uh, hair does. Here's my gripe with La Vie Bohème, though, and with a lot of these songs. If we're doing a rock opera that is of its time, that this is the Gen X uh, mid-90s rock opera, this is the thing of our generation, why is the big anthem in that musical not a proper rock song or grunge song? Like, it sounds very uh, boogie-woogie, like a Michael McDonald thing or something maybe not or what's a better uh, example of that what's the guy that's uh, an actor that he also uh, did that thing where he changed the audience was clapping wrong and so he fixed the thing I'm this his name is never gonna come to me is it Harry something god damn it fuck he's an actor <laughs> he was on Will and Grace I'm so sorry audience you all know who it is and you're all shouting at me and I bet it's not even Harry I gotta look it up I'm so sorry Holy shit, it is Harry. It's Harry Connick Jr. Okay. Sorry about that. Back on track. Here we go. We're doing this. Um, oh my God, am I going to break two hours today? I have 13 minutes. Fuck. Okay, let's keep going. We're only at the end of the first act. Um, 
So yeah, um, it seems like a song from Hair. Like I said, the list of it all. Um, they do... Uh, I don't understand exactly how these Bohemians define things that are Bohemian. Because some of them... And maybe this is a larger existential question. Does it have to be rebellious to be Bohemian? Can you be... Here's, here are the things that stood out to me as not Bohemian. Uh, any passing fad, masturbation, entropy, and eating disorders. Maybe I don't know what Bohemian means, but, you know, most of those seem Bohemian, but those, at least those four, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Is it because you're not supposed to masturbate? And is it, I don't know. And, you know, entropy is uh, what we're all fighting against here. <laughs> um, the thing is, you know, I can't be mad at Tassad and me. It's between God and me. I think that's one of the best moments of the show, lyrically and musically. But uh, importantly, the way that those lyrics sit on the music, it makes me kind of emotional hearing it. The way, where it comes in the song, that's like, the song is like a party. And then they bring up sodomy. And they say it's between God and me. And boy, it's so much better than the way that Hare dealt with sodomy. Can we agree on that? Um, I also got a little emotional when they did uh, actual reality, act up, fight AIDS. Um, I've, yeah, I'd like I, even saying it now, I got a little chill down my spine. It's great. It's re th that's really good. That feels like, and especially at the time, and if, if you were living in New York City and, you know, among these things, like to see that, uh, said on stage uh, might be, I don't know what New York City has to do with it, because of ACT UP is, is what I'm saying. <laughs> the organization ACT UP. But really anybody that's um, engaged in sodomy, it's between God and, and you. Um, I remember like so many times skipping I Should Tell You when I was singing along with the show that the very end of it, when it's uh, La Vibo MB, it starts with like them on the last syllable of that oh are we packed you know like i have that in my head like the very end of whatever it doesn't matter um there's some purple lyrics in that i, I should tell you song to borrow a phrase from sondheim of just like yeah trusting desire starting to learn walking through fire without a burn those are very purple and uh in a bad way then there's a riot. Everybody's mooing and they have a riot. This is apparently based on an actual riot that happened in Tompkins Square Park in 1988. It was to uh, protest against the city and post curfew. Uh, the, uh, all the homeless there, Tompkins Square Park. The funny thing about that is if you go to the, this part of the uh, Lower East Side now, and boy, oh boy, is it gentrified. You need a lot of money to live uh, anywhere near Tompkins Square Park. It's kind of the best part of the, uh, yeah, the city, whatever. I preferred Act 1 as a kid, like I said. It's kind of flipped now. Um... I mean, Act 2 begins with Seasons of Love, which, okay, let's face it, that's probably a good song. We can never know because it's way too played out. Maybe uh, people that were of age, you know, and discerning when Rent premiered and heard Seasons of Love for the first time, you'll have to tell me. I don't know. I was in kind of indifferent to it because uh, I knew it was the one everyone liked. It was the hit, but I... Just sort of, uh, I learned how to play it in the piano because it's kind of fun to play. It still is. We do it in work sometimes at the place where I'm a singing waiter. And it's an enormous pain in the ass because everybody, all of the waiters need to sing it. But none of us are all like not busy at the same time. So it's very hard to organize. And someone's always trying to organize it. And I'm always uh, lukewarm about the idea. 
the following song is great, Happy New Year. I remember thinking like this is one of the few songs that sounds like a song that a person might listen to in 1996, like on its own. Like it sounds like it could be like a third eye blind song. And it gets into, it's like a lot of scenes within that song, but then it keeps returning to the refrain. One of my least favorite moments on the whole soundtrack is, uh, where's everyone else? Playing Spider-Man. When Roger says that, just the way he says it. Playing Spider-Man. Um, and then we get another fucking voicemail. We get two voicemails. And then we, we're introduced to Alexi Darling, which is just like very irritating every time Alexi Darling says things. Um, and not in a way that's like uh, fun. I get that it's supposed to be irritating. Alexi Darling. It's unpleasant. And it happens one too many. Let's call it three too many times. And it happens exactly three times. The second half, though, of Happy New Year, Happy on the soundtrack, they call it Happy New Year B. They do this with a couple songs, uh, like La Vie Bohème A, I Should Tell You, and then La Vie Bohème B. It's because they want to interrupt the song to do another thing. Um, when Benny comes in, um, that stuff is good. Like, the mu musically and the way that that scene flows with the, 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 the clearing the lot was a safety concern we break ground this month but you can return that's why you're here with people you hate instead of with Muffy at Muffy's estate you know what's interesting is like um, Benny gets mad because Roger hurts his feelings and you kind of feel bad for Benny Benny's status as the villain of this piece is very complicated because of like Benny seems to get redeemed, but then he, they, he still gets owned at the end, even though he's been redeemed. But we'll talk about that later. Um, my point is, I feel for Benny in this scene because he kind of is vulnerable with them. Uh, he's not with Muffy at Muffy's estate. And he says, I'd honestly rather be w with you tonight than in Westport. And then Dickhead Rogers like, spare us old sport, the sound bite. And then he gets mad. Mimi said, so ways are so seductive. Please must wait. I'm not on my side. Yeah, why'd you tell him what you want? I was on my way to work. Black leather and lace. My desk was a mess. I think I'm still sore. Like, that's a dick move. I mean, to talk, first of all, to talk about her in that way. Uh, and to create, sow the seeds of uh, jealousy between Roger and Mimi. But um, also, when we were watching this, my girlfriend got confused about what was being said and wanted subtitles. This is where she asked for subtitles. And I told her... Um, this is YouTube. There are no subtitles available. Rent film live on Broadway, by the way, as of uh, September 8th, uh, 2023, is available on YouTube. So there you go. Unfortunately, that, that, that song then ends with uh, the man. He comes in with the drugs <laughs> and offers them to Mimi. It's going to be a happy new year. I used to think this was super serious and sad, but now it's like it's very laughable. The, man, the whole thing with the drugs and the man is silly. Take Me or Leave Me is another song that's very played out, so it's hard to tell if it's good or not. It's weird. Um, in the play, there's this dialogue between Joanne and Maureen before that song, and it's like the only, it's the longest stretch of dialogue up to that point. And it's like, why is it there? It doesn't make any sense. We haven't heard anybody really talking, except for Mark narrating. And yeah, I, Maureen might just be an asshole. Like that whole, that first verse. And her whole vibe, when I was 15, I think I heard this and I didn't know what it was to be an adult. And I thought, oh, this is all very free-spirited and interesting. Oh, sex and drugs are scary, but Maureen is cool. And I, that's something that I don't understand. But yeah, as an adult, you're like, no, this sucks. That's not a nice way to treat people. Joanne, get out of this thing. I also hate to say this, but I think Freddie Walker, who plays Joanne in the original cast recording, she may be the weak link in that cast. And I, and I know that she's one of two people they did not put in the movie, uh, her and Daphne Rubin Vega. 
I think Daphne Rubin Vega was like pregnant or something, but they replaced her with Tracy Thomas in the movie, who's also in Rent Film Live on Broadway. Um, I could be wrong about that, by the way. Uh, apologies to Freddie Walker and uh, her relatives. You know, and so this is where I start to realize, because I came into this episode when I decided I was going to talk about Rent, I was like, okay, this is going to get super negative again. But man, I think at this point I started to see the value in it again, because all these years later, I still get choked up um, when you first see Angel sick. Um, man, it's it's rough. It's really rough. And it's... Uh, handled with a lot of care and it's really earned like i said because of the whole arc of angel and collins um the song contact is garbage it's <laughs> i remember thinking too as a pubescent lad a virgin like this is like the most unsexy expression of sex ever and maybe that's kind of the point there's just nothing actually <laughs> alluring about the way they're talking about sex and expressing sex in that song it's kind of interesting though the way that it sets up the next thing and um am i saying obvious things but the whole thing with angel with the white sheet and everything um where it's like where we were uh, take me take me but also it's like it's kind of emerging into heaven as an actual angel uh, whatever i like how vague it is or how uh you know not obvious whatever God damn it, shut up. I'm sick of this. Uh, I'm about to hit two. I'm definitely going over two hours. I apologize. You already knew that because you looked at the episode. It gets into I'll Cover You reprise. <sighs> Rough. Uh, very sad moment. Um, taken from the actual La Boheme, the idea of the coat. Well, I mean, the fact that he's holding a coat. There's a few aspects from La Boheme that survive into Rent. Like, uh, good, I think Goodbye Love. There's like something or other that says goodbye, love. Obviously, Musetta's waltz, they even reference it. But uh, the coat, there's, I, I know that because I studied opera in high school, at the arts high school, and I had to learn the song that is basically the opera equivalent of I'll Cover You Reprise, where somebody is mourning their friend or whatever dying, and it's like, That's I'll Cover You Reprise in La Boheme. Jesse L. Martin um, is so great on this in the soundtrack. And having seen Rent a few times, I've noticed that this moment, it's like the kind of the heart of the show, and it's where you first start crying uncontrollably. But you can kind of ruin it if the Collins is doing too many vocal runs. And I hate to say it, but the guy in Rent Film Live on Broadway does do that. He's doing a little too many uh, vocal pyrotechnics that you can't really live in the feelings. So uh, that is a danger with I'll Cover You Reprise. The song Halloween, I like it a lot. It's kind of just Jonathan Larson writing in his diary. He's watching everyone around him dying. He's going to be all alone. Poor baby! Um, Goodbye, Love is a really good song. The musical conversations, I'm telling you, all the way through. And in this one, I mean, the fight that they have. I mean, first of all, can we let's address something. Those four people, who are they? Uh, Mark, sorry, not Mark. Uh, Roger, Mimi, Joanne, and Maureen they're assholes for getting in a loud fight at Angel's funeral. Like, you suck for doing that. You can maybe either take it outside or put a pin in it. Like, grow the fuck up. That is extremely insensitive and disrespectful to the dead and to Collins, who is still alive. 
the Mark and Roger stuff in that. The um, Mark has got his work. They say Mark lives for his work. I sang that in my room so much, going back and forth, doing it as Mark, doing it as Roger. It's really well written, I think. Until the very end of it where it's there's a dud where they do spoken rhymes for no reason. Hey, for someone who's always been let down, who's heading out of town? For someone who longs for community of his own, who's with his camera alone? Again, it's the kind of thing you don't question when you're a teenager, but when, when you get a little bit older, you're like, that's stupid. Why are you doing that? Now, so Benny, so fucking Benny, so he offers to pay for the rehab for Mimi. He pays for the funeral for Angel. He's a good guy. Benny's an okay guy. You can't expect to not pay your rent for an entire year. Okay, he wants to build a cyber studio, whatever. That's dumb. But like, he, so in this scene, it does seem like, okay, we like Benny. He's getting redeemed. But then at the end, he gets owned. Like they have this coda on Benny. We're, we're screening the movie in honor of Benny's wife throwing him out of the East Village location. Why are we celebrating that? Benny did, did a nice thing. And why did we kill his dog? Why the fuck did we do that? Justice for, hashtag justice for Benny. Anyway, all gets very sad. Roger doesn't want baggage without lifetime guarantees. Then it gets into what you own, which uh, was one of my favorites as a child. I, it's hard for me to say what the revelation is here exactly on what you own, especially in the first part. I guess it's a little bit more simple than maybe I thought it was as a child because it's really just saying... The first half is, uh, here's the predicament. In America, you are what you own. And then in the second half of the song, we have this uh, big revelation uh, where, where you're not alone. We're not al we're, we're, you're not alone. I'm not alone. The final sequence, the finale, finale A. You know what always bothered me? Why is it 10 p.m. instead of 9 p.m.? The beginning is 9 p.m. Uh, Eastern Standard Time. And then a year later, I can't, I can't believe a year went by so fast. It's not just a year. It's a year and an hour. Why? It ruins the symmetry. Is there some point to that? Am I missing it? Can somebody let me know? I'd love to know. Um, big LOL on route. When, so when they bring uh, Mimi, they're like, it's Mimi. I can't carry up the stairs. And Roger goes, no. It's a lot like, um, have you ever seen Pet Cemetery, the original Pet Cemetery, when that little, uh, uh, well, you know, spoiler, the very middle of the movie's Pet Cemetery, let's just say a, a, a toddler meets a, a sad end at the hands of a uh, truck. Well, I just told you the whole thing. I don't know why I'm being vague about it. but And then his dad, there's a moment where you and the audience are like, oh, fuck. And then the dad goes... And then you laugh really hard. Maybe you just do if you're an asshole like me and my friends in high school. But we, re we, we rewinded that like over and over again and laughed our asses off because we're bad people. Um, and then, you know, again, it's too bad that the electric pianos are what they are on the I Should Tell You reprises. Uh, Your Eyes is a pretty song. It wasn't until I saw it live um, that you, I really realized how devastating it is, though. The way that her death is timed, uh, like how she dies right before his Mimi. Uh, it really gets you. And it got me this time too. And then that finale, you know, I got, it's, it's fucking good. I got to tell you, you know, no day but today, baby. Uh, yeah, I came back around on rent and I think it's all there in act two. 
I didn't think I liked Rent as much as I did. And I think it's because I saw the movie and then I haven't really seen Rent outside of the movie since the movie came out. But Rent the play is good. I mean, I won't get too much into the movie here because this is the longest podcast in the history of podcasts. But uh, interestingly enough, um, the timing of the movie of Rent is very similar to the timing of the movie of Hair. It's like 10 years later after the thing, like after the vibe, the movement, the whole uh, aesthetic. And it's a period piece. They do that in the movie Rent. I think they have a Chiron at the beginning saying New York City 1989 or something, 88, 90. I don't remember. Um, and it's the same thing with hair. I mean, we're talking about uh, Vietnam era hippies, but the movie's from 1979. You know, I always think that I'm a genius when I pick two musicals and they line up with things like this, but it's probably just like listening to Pink Floyd while watching The Wizard of Oz. It's like things line up uh, accidentally, so I shouldn't give myself too much credit. In 2005, uh, this movie had come out. I really wanted to see it, obviously. I'd been a rent head for some years. I already was sort of uh, not believing in rent anymore. Um, and also at this point, I was like completely had left the world of musical theater. I had rejected it and I was a stoner playing in bands. And I went with my stoner friends in 2005 to the movie theater to see Chronicles of Narnia. We got there early. We had a few minutes. And so the whole idea was that we would go see the beginning of Rent and like ironically watch the beginning of Rent, which my friends all pro like this probably sucks. Um, it was time to leave right around uh, the end of the title song. And I really wanted to stay. I'm not going to lie. I was on board. I was disappointed, but didn't want to admit it that I had to then go see the Chronicles of Narnia, which was also, which was fine. I mean, a better movie than Rent, as it turns out. But at the time, I wanted to stay and watch Rent. You lose some of the best songs in the movie, um, like all the tune-ups. Those are all great. Like I said, you lose the Christmas bells. Like any, I, maybe it's just my personal thing. I am a big fan of people singing their conversations as opposed to people singing soliloquies about their thoughts. And they really lopped off all of the musical conversations in this. At least, you know, a lot of the good ones. Anthony Rapp on that bicycle is so dumb. And, and Anthony Rapp, maybe it's just uh, the 10 years. A lot of them, particularly Mark and Roger, they look older. They look a little too old in this. They kick off the movie with Seasons of Love, which, okay, makes sense. Um, this is where you find out it's directed by Christopher Columbus. Uh, not the one that sailed the ocean blue in 1492, but the one that uh, made uh, Home Alone, etc. Um, you also find out, I'm going to mispronounce this name. This is very strange. Uh, Stephen Chbosky wrote the screenplay. <laughs> what the fuck? That makes no sense. All of the dialogue in this movie is lifted from things that used to be songs. Anytime there's not a song, it's dialogue that used to be a song. There's like maybe two or three lines that are original. Steven, he, this is the guy that wrote Perks of Being a Wallflower, which, you know, I don't know how necessarily how good that book is. I loved it when I was, you know, younger. But why are we getting Chbosky for this? Couldn't we just get anybody? Couldn't we get a fucking stenographer to write this screenplay? I don't know. Um, one of the ways in that this movie succeeds a little bit, and then you have high hopes, but then they are dashed, is the way that they deal with One Song Glory. Because of film, we can do a montage. And um, so we can see what happened with Mara, Roger and April, his ex-girlfriend, his late ex-girlfriend. And you don't need, we don't need Mark narrating it saying, <laughs> his girlfriend April left a note saying we've got AIDS before slitting her wrists in the bathroom. It's a very weird moment. Uh, and it, another thing that sucks about the movie is that they, the whole first act they put over the course of a couple days and they make uh, the next day Christmas Day. 
there's nothing exciting about Christmas Day. Christmas Eve is where exciting things happen, and it just ruins the vibe of everything. And then it makes it day daylight, and so yeah, the talky dialogue is annoying. Um, Sarah Silverman is in there, and I heard her talk about this on a podcast one time. I I love Sarah Silverman. She said that she only read her scenes. She had never seen Rent on stage, and she only read the parts that she was supposed to do. She didn't read the script in full. And so after she filmed all of her scenes, like she talked to someone who saw the movie, and she said you were. They said you were the funniest thing in the whole movie, and she got really excited. And so she went to go see it, and then she realized it was an AIDS drama, and so uh, that's why she was the funniest thing in it. A little uh, Sarah Silverman anecdote there, uh, secondhand. And then uh, probably the funniest part of the whole movie, the worst part, rather, and funniest, is uh, the filming of What You Own with Roger in the fucking desert in Santa Fe, looking like he's doing a Bon Jovi music video. Really bad. Really cheesetastic. Not very good, folks. Um, so, listen, final thoughts. I think Rent deserves our forgiveness. Certainly deserves my forgiveness. <laughs> It's not asking for my forgiveness, but I offer my forgiveness. I forgive you, Rent. You're a little cheesy and you're a little 90s, but God damn it, you mean well. And you're, you, you are good. And I'm sorry for spending the last, uh, let's call it, 15 years uh, ranting about how bad you are. Because, boy, I, it got me. It got me. And I think that maybe that is one of the perks of exiting your 20s is that you don't, uh, all of these uh, contrarian cool guy opinions you have about things, you can kind of just set those down and see things at eye level. So yeah, a little bit messy, but overall it's emotionally resonant and it's a good show. I need you to like Rent. And hopefully, if you're still listening to this podcast after well over two hours, you uh, agree. Okay, I'm going to end this thing. I have, uh, I do not have, oh yeah, okay, this is an easy one. Uh, goodbye, pod, goodbye, pod. It's time to say goodbye, pod, goodbye. It's time to say goodbye, pod, goodbye, pod, goodbye, pod. Hello. Oh my God, I can't say the name of the fucking restaurant, but it rhymes with disease. Okay. The restaurant I'm going to work at rhymes with disease. Please don't stalk me at that restaurant. Thank you. And until next week, folks, stop thinking about next week because there's no day but today. And uh, you blew it. So hopefully tomorrow is better. All right. Bye. <laughs>